morning. Good morning. Thanks, Bridget. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds on a snowy, icy December 3rd, 2014. I was not stuck in the snow. I was in section chief meeting, so um, sorry for the slightly delayed start. It's a little bit wintry. So um, we have a couple of Grand Rounds before the holiday break. Um, I'll introduce Dr. Moon shortly, but Mary Faye is joining us, uh, our neonatology, one of our neonatology senior fellows next week with a title to be determined or somewhere. I don't see Mary to sort of tease us on the, the title. And then December 17th, Patrick Brennan, a pediatric physiatrist, will be talking about the latest advances in cerebral palsy management. I, um, for our, I just got a letter for our gratitudes today. Uh, that I wanted to share for everybody um, that came to our development office. Our son needed to have surgery. This is from yesterday. Uh, the, sur the surgery wasn't. We were lucky enough that Chad is our local hospital. We were blessed with a brave, supporting, and caring medical team. Each and every nurse was amazing at helping to keep us calm and informed during a very difficult time. Uh, our surgeon, Dr. Dan Cretora, was the most competent and compassionate person. We were really well cared for while staying at Chad. The helpfulness of infant swings, toys, mobiles made it easier for us to feel more at home. The coffee and snacks that were always available made it possible to eat when we didn't want to leave our child. It is with gratitude and appreciation that we donate $5,000 to be used to help make the stay of other young children and families as comfortable as can be during a hard time. So thank you. The thanks was great enough, but some folks actually expressed their gratitude in, in donations, so um, never forget that. So um, Dr. Dr. Moon, Dr. Rachel Moon is here for our Grand Rounds. Dr. Darnall invited her. Bob Darnall wasn't here to introduce her, unfortunately, as a colleague in work on sudden infant death syndrome, which is uh, the topic of the Grand Rounds. Um, Dr. Moon comes to us from Children's National Medical Center, but was uh, educated at Emory University for both undergraduate and medical school had a residency training at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and then, uh, thank you, served our country in the U.S. Air Force for, uh, looked like five years after residency training. She currently is the Director of Academic Development and the Associate Division Chief of the Division of General Pediatrics Community Health the at the Goldberg Center for Community Pediatric Health and the Goldberg Center uh, Children's Research Institute at Children's National Medical Center and also Professor of Pediatrics at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Science. Dr. Moon, welcome to Dartmouth. Okay, can you hear me? Okay. Um, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Um, I apologize because um, I think I brought the weather with me. Um, although I didn't think it was going to be such have such an impact because I didn't know that a two-hour delay was a thing here. I thought that that was just for weather wimps like we are in um, Maryland and in D.C. But um, you guys are supposed to be more stoic than that. <laughs> okay, so today we're going to talk about SIDS and sleep-related deaths. Um, I'm going to do a, a brief um, overview of what the definitions are, um, talk about why these babies die, talk a little bit about statistics. I'll spend a bulk of the time talking about some of the recommendations and the underlying rationale for the recommendations, and then end with uh, thinking about how we move forward and thinking about challenges and barriers. 
Um, unfortunately, I don't have any relationships to disclose. Um, so just so that we're all on the same page, I want to just start with some definitions. Um, SUID, which is sudden and unexpected infant death, also uh, known as sudden and unexpected death in infancy, or SUDI, uh, depending on where, you're, uh, where the researchers are coming from. SUDI tends to be used more in, in Europe and in Australia and New Zealand, and SUID is more of a U.S. term. But they basically mean what they look like they mean. So it's when a baby, an infant, less than 365 days of age, dies suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, so there's a, um, so sewage can be explained or unexplained, and explained are things like trauma, drowning, known diagnosis, you know, meningitis, um, whatever. Um, so those are the explained ones. And then um, accidental suffocation is an explained death, but sometimes that it's not considered um, in this category until after the death scene investigation because initially it, it looks like it may be unexplained. Unexplained um, SIDS and then undetermined, which um, is a different category. It's when the medical examiner or the coroner can't decide what it is, has a little bit of doubt in his mind about whether it might be SIDS or accidental suffocation or homicide or something like that, and so we'll use the undetermined category. SIDS, accidental, oh, let's see, SIDS and accidental suffocation, and then the undetermined um, are what we call sleep-related deaths because they occur during sleep, usually, or in a sleep environment. Um, and these, again, are, are these categories, so suffocation, um, and, and along with suffocation are things such as uh, strangulation and entrapment, um, the ill-defined, undetermined, unknown category, and then SIDS. So then when we talk about SIDS, SIDS is a SUID that remains unexplained even after you do a death scene investigation, you completely review the history, and you do an autopsy. Um, and typically, it's a baby who is seemingly healthy who is found dead after a sleep period, and they've died either during sleep or during a transition from sleeping uh, to awakening. Um, and it is a diagnosis of exclusion, and it is unpredictable. Suffocation, um, on the other hand, so um, suffocation is a form of asphyxia, and we all know asphyxia is a situation where your, your CO2 increases um, and your O2 decreases in your body. And this can happen if you stop breathing. This can happen if there's any obstruction of any part of your airway. Um, and this can also happen if you rebreathe carbon dioxide. So let's, just, let's uh, pretend that, you're, um, that it's a cold night and you're snuggled up in your covers and you maybe have the covers over your head, and you can actually build a pocket of, re of, of exhaled CO2 in front of your mouth and in front of your nose, and you can be rebreathing that. Um, so suffocation, again, is a form of asphyxia. Um, entrapment is when a baby is trapped um, in a situation that causes asphyxia. Most commonly, this happens um, in a bed-sharing situation, and the baby falls off the bed um, or slips off the bed and slips in between the mattress and the wall or the mattress and the headboard or the mattress and the, um, the bedside table. Um, and then strangulation is, is, is when something gets caught around the uh, baby's neck. It doesn't take a lot of pressure to completely obstruct a, um, a baby's airway. You just press very gently on the neck, and, and that can be enough. Um, a hand on the baby's back if they're lying on their stomach. We've had several babies that have died like this. The, the grandmother or somebody has their hand on the baby's back um, while the baby's sleeping or the arm on the baby's back, and that can be enough to do it as well. 
Um, so asphyxia has always been a part of SIDS. And if you think about it, a lot of the risk factors are associated with environments that are potentially asphyxiating. So sleeping on your stomach, um, soft bedding, pillows, bumper pads, bed sharing, all of these things um, are potentially asphyxiating environments. Um, so there are some asphyxial um, situations that will cause death in any baby. So for instance, if they're strangulate, you know, if they're being strangled or if they're entrapped or something like that. Um, but there are some situations where not all babies die. So why is that? Um, Jim Filiano uh, developed the triple risk model. Um, and what the triple risk model says is that you have a vulnerable baby um, who undergoes a critical developmental period and then is, is stressed. Um, and if you have these three coming together, then you have SIDS. So the vulnerable baby is the baby that has brainstem dysfunction, um, arousal defect, maybe a, a gene polymorphism, and there's been a lot of work done in that area. Um, and it looks like a lot of, um, you know, and all of this is pointing to arousal defect. Um, so brainstem um, dysfunction, there was actually a study that was just published this week um, in Acta Neuropathologica, I think, by Hannah Kinney in Boston Children's, um, and, and, um, and talking about brainstem dysfunction and arousal defect. And so you have this baby who has an arousal defect who doesn't wake up when they need to um, that undergoes this critical uh, developmental period, and we know that the highest risk is between two to four months of age, and that's a, a period of huge growth, both physically and developmentally, and, um, and brain growth. Um, and then you stress this baby you put this baby on the stomach to sleep, you smoke around the baby, there's soft bedding, all of these things, and again, you, um, you have this combination and then you get SIDS. Another way to think about it is that you have an uh, interplay of genetic factors and then the behavioral, social, cultural, and environmental factors that lead to, um, to the disease. And the phenotype, which is what the, the disease looks like for SIDS, is death. Um, so this is not all that different from other diseases like cardiac disease, um, where you have genetic factors and behavioral and social and cultural and environmental factors that play into it. So, um, you know, you have a genetic factors, so maybe you have a history, um, a family history of people who have died of heart attacks or had strokes early on. Um, you know, maybe you have, um, you know, you, your blood is a little bit hypercoagulable or something like that. And then you have the behavioral things. So, you know, how often do you eat fast food? How, how much do you smoke? Do you exercise? How much do you weigh? Do you take your medicines? Is your blood pressure controlled? All these things. So it's, it's this interplay of the genetic and the behavioral um, that, that make a difference. So for SIDS, it's just, again, it's just like cardiac disease. You know, you hear about you know, the marathon runner who suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack, and that makes the news, okay? And the marathon runner did everything right. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, how could he have died from a heart attack, okay? And it was because the genetic factors were what kind of overwhelmed him. And then you have the people who are on the other end who don't exercise, who don't watch their weight, who don't take their medicines, who, you know, smoke, um, who don't eat healthily. And, you know, they may have no genetic factors, but then they have all of these other things that overwhelm their system. Okay, so this, the same thing is true for babies who die of SIDS. So there are some babies where the parents did everything right. And these are the ones that you hear about, you know, that, that the baby um, was lying in the crib, on the back, nothing in the crib, and the baby still died. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And that's a baby that, you know, where the genetic factors really, really came into play 
And then we have others for whom um, the, there, it's been mainly the behavioral factors, um, but most of them are kind of in the middle, and there's this, again, there's this interplay there. So our current hypothesis is that SIDS occurs when you have a vulnerable baby who can't adequately defend him or herself against an asphyxiating environment, and it's a level of asphyxia where most babies would be fine and they wouldn't die. So again, Hannah Kinney um, of the Boston Children's and her colleagues have found abnormalities in autonomic control. Bob Darnell is part of this group. They've looked at um, uh, neurotransmitter binding, serotonin, acetylcholine, um, GABA, all of these things, and they found that there's this network dysfunction um, and that babies may not be able to sense and respond to hypoxia or hypercarbia like other babies. Um, Debbie Wiesmeyer in, in Chicago and others have found polymorphisms in the serotonin transporter protein um, gene, and the polymorphisms um, that are the ones that code for SIDS or the ones that are more common in babies that died of SIDS are the ones that code um, so that there's decreased neurotransmitter binding. So, that, so we're seeing the pathologic um, uh, findings and then the genetics that kind of help to, to support that. And up to 70% of SIDS babies have these neurotransmitter abnormalities. Um, and they're not present in, in babies that die of other causes. So, um, so what you'll see here, the, the medullary part of the brainstem actually controls a lot of things. So upper airway control, respirations, heart rate, blood pressure, and then also sleep and arousal. That's all controlled in the medullary level of the brainstem. So this actually, this slide I, I um, proudly stole from Bob Darnell. Um, he makes great slides. If you ever need some you know, pictorial slides, uh, ask him. Um, so what you have is, a, you know, for every baby who, um, every baby, you have a sleep environment. And the sleep environment um, is, can range from non-asphyxiating to severely asphyxiating. Um, and, and that can be determined by the, the number of risk factors that are there, uh, how the baby's sleeping, um, what the baby's sleeping with, who the baby's sleeping with, um, all of that can determine um, how asphyxiating or non-asphyxiating that sleep environment is. And then you have the baby who is either severely vulnerable, normal, um, no vulnerability, um, anywhere, again, there's this range. Um, and the severe vulnerability, we've kind of talked about, all of these things can, can, um, can create a vulnerability. But you can have interactions anywhere along this continuum. So you can have a normal baby in a non-asphyxiating environment, um, a baby who's uh, severely vulnerable in a non-asphyxiating environment. So anywhere you can have interactions. Um, and then, so the, when you look at the cause of death, um, over here on the, on the far right, if you have a normal baby in a severely asphyxiating environment, it's clearly accidental suffocation, and that's pr a pretty easy thing. Um, over here, if you have a severely vulnerable in a non-asphyxiating non environment, then that's clearly SIDS, and that's a, a, a pretty clear-cut thing. But then in the middle, it's not so clear-cut. And so when is it SIDS? When is it undetermined? And, and where is that bar? And Tom Andrew, hi. <laughs> Tom Andrew will tell you that this bar may change depending on who, who is doing the autopsy, who's doing the cause of death determination. The, and the, the thing is that the, the person who is doing this determination is missing a big piece of the information, and that's how vulnerable the baby is. And so that's why you get a lot of variability in how these deaths are coded, and, and there can be a lot of confusion. So, um, 
so the the so the the where this threshold lies um, between a diagnosis of SIDS, axonal suffocation, or undetermined um, is based basically on the history and the death scene investigation, um, and and there is this piece missing. The key for us as public health people and as pediatricians, family practitioners, all of those people, is that a safe sleep environment can reduce the risk of all of these deaths. Okay, and that's the key for us here today. So switching gears a little bit, I just want to um, briefly uh, talk about statistics. So the bars here are the SIDS rates. Um, the yellow bars are before 1992 when um, the AAP first recommended the babies not sleep on their stomachs. The green bar started in 1994, which is where the Back to Sleep campaign started. Um, and so, um, and then the, the blue line here is the percent of babies um, that are placed on their backs to sleep. And as you can see, beginning in um, the, the back sleep, back positioning has increased um, and the SIDS rate has decreased, but both of those have plateaued over the past few years. So having said that, you know, since 1994, more than 35,000 lives have been saved just from back to sleep, from babies not being placed on their back, which is huge, you know, and that's just in the U.S., um, even more globally, um, but there's still challenges. Um, our first challenge is that there are increasing rates of other sleep-related deaths, accidental suffocation, entrapment, undetermined. Most of these are occurring in unsafe sleep environments. In some, in some jurisdictions, it's more than 90%. Um, in D.C., in the past five years, 100% of these babies have been um, in unsafe sleep environments. Um, and there's a lot of bedding, bed sharing with others. There's a lot of other stuff uh, um, in the unsafe sleep environment. Um, we had a baby that died last year that was sleeping in a crib with plastic bags full of laundry. Um, and, um, you know, clearly, clearly things that are, that are not safe. Um, and so if you look actually at the sleep-related deaths over the past 50, uh, 20 years or so, um, what you'll see, okay, so the, down here at the bottom, the maroon, let's see, the maroon is um, our SIDS deaths. Um, the, the white in the middle um, are the... Um, ill-defined or undetermined deaths, and then it's supposed to be light blue, but you can't really tell it's light blue on the slide. Those are the ASSB, or accidental suffocation and strangulation and bed deaths. So as you can see, even though the SIDS deaths have come down, the proportion of the other deaths have increased. So actually, if you look at the sleep-related deaths over the past 20 years, there, there really hasn't been a, a decline at all. Um, if you look at accidental suffocation and strangulation deaths themselves, just, just that category, um, those rates have quadrupled um, in the past uh, 15, 20 years. So why is this happening? Okay, so one thing that's happening is that there is a little bit of a diagnostic shift. There's improved death scene investigation, so deaths that were previously called SIDS may now be called something else. Um, but there are also increases in some of these behaviors, so um, in some of these practices. So there are increases in prone sleeping, increases in soft bedding use, um, and increases in bed sharing. Um, it's rare these days to see deaths without some combination of these three factors. It's, you just don't see it very often. Our second challenge is um, racial disparities, racial and ethnic disparities. If you look at SIDS rates, you can see that the African-American, the, the non-Hispanic black, and the American Indian and Alaska Native, their rates are twice as high as anyone else. The black bars are from um, 1996, and the gray bars are from 2006. So the rates have come down in all of those um, groups, 
But again, you see these racial disparities for SIDS. You see similar ones for um, axonal suffocation, strangulation, and bed. Um, and then you, uh, and also for the ill-defined and, and un, undetermined deaths. Um, you also have um, racial differences in terms of behaviors. So this is looking at prone positioning um, by race ethnicity. And as you can see, most of um, prone positioning has decreased in all groups. Um, and in most of them, they've kind of stayed down, stayed down in the less than 20 percentile range. But then if you look at the maroon, which is um, the African-American group, um, that that has started to go up in recent years and actually is, is starting to skyrocket. So, um, so about 40 percent of parents in 2008 um, African-American parents said that they placed babies on their stomach. And um, one thing to remember when you look at these statistics is that this is just what parents are telling us. Okay, so this is their self-report, and, um, and it's pro so it's probably, this is probably uh, an underestimate. Um, so because there are a lot of people that are doing things and, and they're not telling us what they're doing. Um, so, so why do we have these challenges and what's the problem? So I think that one of the problems is that everybody thinks that their baby is the exception to the rule, okay? My baby is special. My baby was a preemie, so he can't sleep on his back. My baby has reflux, so she can't sleep on her back. Um, my baby is a bad sleeper, okay, whatever that means, but my baby is a bad sleeper and can only sleep on his stomach. So everyone thinks that their baby is the exception to the rule, and so they don't have to follow the rules. Okay, so why should you care? You should care because you're a whatever you are. And I don't mean that like it sounded like. <laughs> but, you know, some people say, well, I'm just a nurse. I'm just a doctor. I'm just a WIC nutritionalist. I'm just whatever that nobody listens to me. And so why should I care? But people do listen to you, okay? So if you are told, you know, if, for African-American parents, if they're, um, this one study showed that they were 40% more likely to report being advised to place their baby prone in the hospital, okay? Um, and people are less, but, you know, the thing is that more than 90% of parents will follow the sleep recommendations. At least they'll try. They'll start out doing that. Um, and 93% of parents who see their baby placed prone will place their baby prone when they go home. It's even more if they see somebody placing their baby on the side. Because basically what happens is that they see somebody whom they trust, whom they think knows what they're doing, and they're, they're putting the baby on the side or the stomach. And so they think, oh, well, if she's putting my baby on the side, that means that this isn't important. Because either my baby's not at risk, or this is not a problem anymore, or for whatever reason, and so it's okay for me to do it at home, because the nurse did it, or the doctor did it, okay? So what you do really makes a difference. Okay, so we're gonna talk about um, uh, some of the recommendations. The ones that I'm gonna concentrate on are the ones that I get the most questions about. So I'm gonna talk about sleep position, um, soft bedding, breastfeeding, and bed sharing. So first of all, sleep position. Back to sleep for every sleep. So we recommend back sleeping. We don't recommend side sleeping. Okay, so back only and for nap time and night time. We have a lot of parents who will do one thing for night and one thing for nap because they think that there's a difference, but there isn't. So um, in terms of side versus supine, um, so in 1992, the AAP first said, just don't put them on their, on their stomachs. So you can put them on their side or on their back. 
Um, and then as studies came, at, when we got rid of the stomach sleepers, then the risk of side sleeping really was able, we were able to see the risk of side sleeping in the studies. And so then in 2000, when all of these studies were showing that, oh, side sleeping is really not good either, um, then we said back sleeping is preferred, but side is still better than prone. And then more and more studies have come out that have shown that side sleeping is just as bad as stomach sleeping, okay? But there are a lot of people, including doctors and nurses, who still use the side position. So what, what's, what, we're sh what the studies are showing is that the side position um, and, the and the stomach position really statistically are similar, and there is no statistical difference between those, um, those two odds ratios and, and these two studies. Um, and the problem with the side position is that it's unstable. So it's like more than 50% of babies who start on their side end up in a different position, and the majority of those end up on their stomach. And when they end up on their stomach, they, they um, are in this category called unaccustomed prone, um, which puts them at really high risk. The other thing is that um, a lot of parents have stuff in the baby's sleep environment, pillows, blankets, bumper pads, and stuff. And, um, and so if they're on their side and they roll into soft bedding, that's even worse. So, um, so the risk of unaccustomed prone, you can see supine, the risk of supine, and you can see that the risk of side and prone are pretty much the same. Um, and then unaccustomed prone, the, the risk skyrockets. So why do people put babies not on their backs? Um, two big reasons. One is fear of choking and aspiration. Who's heard that? Anybody? Okay. And, um, and people really worry about that a lot. And then the other reason is because the baby will sleep better or sleep longer. Who's heard that? Okay. Okay, so side often seems like a compromise. Um, okay, so for fear of choking and aspiration, first of all, a lot of people think that when you go like this, that you're choking, okay? But you're actually not, okay? <laughs> because there's this wonderful thing called the gag reflex. Does this work? I don't even think this works. It works on my hand, but it doesn't work over there. Okay, I'm going to give up on this. Okay, so there's this wonderful thing called the gag reflex that makes you make that sound, okay? So when you make that sound, you are actually not choking. You are actually trying your best not to choke, okay? So that is a good sign that you're doing that. But a lot of parents think that when they hear that sound that the baby is choking, okay? Um, there's a lot of concern that babies are going to aspirate, particularly if they have GE reflux, because GE reflux is considered a high-risk category for aspiration by parents and sometimes by healthcare professionals. So what percentage of babies have reflux? A lot? Okay. Can you be more specific? 80%? Okay. So what is reflux? How do you tell somebody's having reflux? <coughs> reflux is spitting up. Okay. So how, what percentage of babies have reflux? 100%. Okay. So reflux is when the food comes up. Okay. And so that is spitting up. Um, so 100% of babies have reflux. Not 100% of babies have reflux disease, but 100% of babies have reflux. Reflux is not an exception to the rule, okay? It is the norm. Okay, if you remember nothing else from this talk, you should remember this slide, okay? And if anybody is asleep around you, just wake them up, 
okay, because I want them to see this slide. Okay, so this is very, very simplistic, but when you show parents this, um, it's like this light bulb that goes off in their head, okay? So when you're lying on your back, um, you, your trachea is on top of your esophagus, okay? So when the food, so I think we'll all, we're all under, we all understand that when you aspirate, it means the food goes down into your lungs, okay? So when you spit up, when you reflux, um, when you're on your back, the food comes up your esophagus, and then it has to go up against gravity to go into your trachea for you to aspirate, okay? When you are on your stomach, the food goes from your esophagus, and then it just goes bloop, like that into your trachea, okay? So technically, anatomically, it is harder for you to aspirate when you're on your back than when you're on your stomach, okay? Now you can go back to sleep. <laughs> okay, so when you look at the studies um, of sleep position and reflux, if you put the babies on their back, it doesn't increase your risk of choking. It doesn't risk, uh, um, increase your risk of aspiration um, because you have these protective airway mechanisms. You have your gag reflex, all of that. So the babies with GE reflux should be placed supine. The only exception, and it is a rare exception, is if the risk of death from complications of GE reflux is greater than the risk of SIDS. So this means babies that have upper airway disorders um, where airway protective mechanisms are impaired. So one example would be a baby with a type 3 or type 4 laryngeal cleft who has not yet undergone anti-reflux surgery. How many people have in this room have ever seen that? None. Okay. So we, I think we can establish that that's fairly rare. Okay. There are a couple of other categories, um, uh, things that are in there, but bottom line is reflux put the babies on the back, okay? Um, how many people have told families, actually that sounds, okay, that sounds um, like we're gonna judge you. Um, okay, so how many people have heard that if you elevate the baby's head, that that will help with reflux? Okay, people are still feeling judged, sorry. Okay, a few brave souls, okay, so, um, elevating the head of the bed when the baby is supine is not recommended because, number one, it doesn't work, okay? If you actually look at the studies, it doesn't work. It works if you're prone, but not when you're supine, okay? And we want the babies to be supine. Um, and the other thing that, that we worry about is that unless you Velcro the baby to the bed, um, the baby doesn't stay there when the head is elevated, the baby slips down and kind, of, and kind of gets all scrunched up, and that can actually compromise respiration, so we don't like that. Okay, so the second reason that people um, put babies on their stomach is because the baby sleeps better, the baby sleeps longer. Um, and we do know that this is true, grandmothers tell us this, and we know this is true, um, that in sleep studies, they do have higher arousal thresholds, they sleep longer, they sleep more deeply. Okay, um, but that, remember that the whole thing about SIDS is about arousal. And this is why we think that babies who sleep on their stomachs are more likely to die from SIDS because they sleep more, uh, more deeply and they don't arouse, okay? So we talk about a good sleeper, um, and I think we all need to change the definition of what we mean by a good sleeper. A good sleeper is not the two-week-old that can sleep from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Okay, that is a scary sleeper. Okay, <laughs> so that is abnormal. 
So you have to kind of change people's expectations. You need to tell them the baby is not going to you know, sleep for a five or six hour stretch, probably until six or seven months of age. That is normal. That is protective. This is good. Um, but it's hard for people to understand that, particularly if the parent's not getting you know, that much sleep either, um, and the parent's just getting more and more desperate. So it is a conversation that you have to have. OK, moving to soft bedding. Um, there are a lot of there. There are several reasons that people use soft bedding. One is comfort. They think that the baby is going to be more comfortable um, because the baby sleeps better, or the parent would be more comfortable. So the parent thinks that the baby would be more comfortable. Okay. Um, number two, safety. Soft is safe. Okay. There isn't a playground in Maryland anymore that has dirt as the base of it. Okay. It's all this smushy stuff. Um, because soft is safe, okay? Um, we, we pad our, the corners of our tables. Soft is safe because you bump into it, it's soft, it won't hurt you. So people think that soft surfaces cushion bumps, and so you have to have soft surfaces around you so that the baby doesn't get hurt, okay? Um, people worry that their baby is getting cold. Um, there's a study this, uh, this week that was um, released by pediatrics about soft bedding use. Um, in the U.S. and how it hasn't gotten any better and, and, and all of that. And one of my friends um, emailed me and said, you know, we live in Chicago. It's cold in Chicago. And, you know, what should we be doing? And, um, and so people do worry about that a lot. And probably people worry about that here in New Hampshire, too. Um, the last reason, and, and even though it sounds silly, you can't ignore it because it's really an important reason for some people, is that it looks nice. It looks pretty. It's supposed, your, the baby room is supposed to look this way. Um, you're supposed to buy it. Everybody does it. Um, and that's, that's a, a huge reason for a lot of people. So when you look at the data for soft bedding and infant, and infant death, um, it does increase the risk of SIDS um, fivefold, independent of what position the baby is in. If you have sleep position plus, um, if you have prone position plus soft bedding, it increases your risk 21-fold, okay? Um, and if you look at the um, Consumer Product Safety Commission data, uh, the majority of the sleep-related infant deaths that are due to suffocation that have been reported to CPSC have involved pillows, quilts, and extra bedding. This is an example from the CPSC files of a baby that um, was prone in, um, in um, soft bedding. Um, bumper pads are also what we consider soft bedding. Again, there are two big reasons that people use bumper pads. They use them for safety. They worry that the baby's going to hit her head. The baby's arm or leg is going to get caught between the slats of the crib. Um, that if the baby scoots into the corner, it will keep the, the pads will keep the baby safe. And they're worried that um, social services is going to come after them because if the baby's bruised. Um, and then the aesthetics. Um, the stores wouldn't sell them if they weren't safe. Okay? Um, so they come with a baby set, so you're supposed to buy them. 
Data about jump bumper pads, that, uh, Brad Thatch in 2007, he looked at Consumer Product Safety Commission data and found that the deaths attributed to bumper pads were from three different mechanisms, suffocation against the soft pillow-like bumper pads, um, entrapment between the mattress and the crib, um, or the crib, and the firm bumper pads, and then strangulation from the ties. And he also found that bumper pads didn't present, prevent injury in young infants because babies, they can't generate enough force, okay? Because remember from physics, F equals MA, okay? Force equals mass times acceleration. Okay, so how much mass does a little baby have? Not a lot, okay? Two or three um, uh, kilograms or so, um, especially in the first few months of life. Um, and then how much acceleration is a, is a young baby less than three months going to be able to generate? Not a lot, okay? Um, you kind of need, and really in order to get enough force to injure yourself, you really need to kind of have a running start, okay? And for most of our babies, that just doesn't happen, except for those exceptional babies that are going to be Olympic athletes later. Um, so you really can't generate enough force. You know, the baby's kind of lying there, and they kind of go boop like that, that's not, you know, the baby's going to be surprised and startled and cry, but it's not really going to hurt the baby, okay? Um, and limb entrapment, it, I, and as a parent, I can say it's very distressing, um, you know, when your baby's limb is, is stuck in, in between the slats, um, but it generally doesn't cause serious injury. You take it out and you move forward. The other thing that we found um, in our focus groups is that if you have the bumper pads, the parents can't see the baby, and that bothers the parents. And so then they take the baby out of the crib and bring the baby into the bed, okay? And so then I recommend, well, you know, you could take the bumper pads out of the crib, and then it's magic. You can see the baby, you know? And, and actually, parents, have, they don't think about that as a possibility, um, they're thinking about it now more in Maryland because um, Maryland has, bu has banned bumper pad sales, um, as has Chicago. Um, but, um, and I think Illinois, the state legislature, they're, they're considering um, a, a statewide ban as well. Um, in 2011, there was a study in pediatrics that was an analysis of crib um, injuries in the CPSC database, and again found that the potential benefits for prevent pre uh, preventing minor injury with bumper pads was far outweighed by the risk of serious injury. So we don't recommend the bumper pads. This is an example of a baby who scooted into the corner and became entrapped. The head became stuck between the mattress and the, and the bumper pad. So you want to get the soft bedding out. You want a firm sleep surface, nothing under the baby, nothing over the baby. You sometimes have to talk to parents about what firm means because in our focus groups we found that a lot of parents thought that firm meant taut, that it meant tight. So if they put a take, if, if it's too hard, then they put a, a blanket or a pillow on top of the mattress and then they wrap it tightly with a sheet and they think that's okay because it's firm but it's soft, okay? So you have to talk to parents about what their understanding of firm is and what your understanding of firm is, okay? Um, no softer, soft objects or loose bedding in the crib. Um, we recommend sleep clothing and layering sleep clothing. Um, and basically nothing should be in the crib except for the baby. Um, so this is an example of sleep clothing and, and a lot of companies now make this. Breastfeeding, okay. Um, breastfeeding is good. We all know this, okay? And it is good for SIDS as well. Um, so if you ever breastfed, um, you can drop your risk of SIDS um, 60, um, uh, 60%. 
Um, and then if you, um, if you uh, exclusively breastfeed, it, um, it increases it even more, okay? So, um, so it's about, so depending on what study you look at, um, but it, it, it basically halves your risk. So if you look at, this is a multivariable analysis from a, a meta-analysis that we did. This is any breastfeeding versus no breastfeeding. Um, and it showed that the absolute risk was 0.68, um, the odds ratio, so a 32% 30, um, decrease in the risk of SIDS. And if you look at exclusive um, breastfeeding is 0.32, so that's what a 68% decrease. So we do recommend breastfeeding um, for the reduced uh, risk of SIDS. Um, and the more you breastfeed, the longer you breastfeed, the better it is. Um, and so we definitely ascribe to the AAP recommendations exclusively breastfeed for six months. But any breastfeeding is more protective than no breastfeeding. Bed sharing is a huge question um, for us. Um, there's a difference between bed sharing and co-sleeping, and you probably have heard both terms. Um, co-sleeping is when the parent and the infant are sleeping close to each other in close proximity. They can be on the same surface or on different surfaces, but they're close enough that they can see, hear, and or touch each other. Um, and that includes bed sharing, or it includes sleeping in the same room in close proximity. Bed sharing is a specific type of co-sleeping where they're on the same surface, okay? And when I talk today, I'm going to talk about bed sharing. There are, again, reasons why parents bed share. Um, it's more convenient for feeding, either formula feeding or bre breastfeeding. Um, parents uh, feel that they can bond with their babies. There is this belief that if you are vigilant and if you are always watching your baby, nothing bad can happen to your baby. Okay? So parents think that the way to be vigilant while they're asleep is to have the baby right next to them because they're always aware of the baby and they, and they know that nothing bad will happen to the baby. Okay? Um, and it, and they will do this particularly if they know that they're doing something that may put the baby at higher risk. So if they put the baby on their stomach, they are more likely to put, bring the baby into bed with them because they know that they're not supposed to put the baby in the stomach and they don't want the baby to die from SIDS, so they bring the baby into bed with them so they can watch to make sure the baby doesn't die from SIDS. Okay. Um, there, are also, there are also communities where there are a lot of dangers, um, environmental dangers that parents worry about, vermin, mice, um, rats, cockroaches, stray gunfire, random kidnappings. These are things that parents worry about, and they bring the baby into bed with them for that. But there are a lot of problems with bed sharing as well. So overheating, soft bedding. There are actually no safety standards for adult mattresses. Um, and no study has ever shown a protective effect of bed sharing on SIDS. Um, and it's not just SIDS, it's also entrapment, accidental suffocation, strangulation. It is the predominant risk factor for sleep-related uh, deaths in babies less than four months of age. Um, and most of the studies on bed sharing have only looked at SIDS, not at the other deaths. And so, so every, it's, it's about SIDS, but then plus the other deaths. Um, this is a reenactment, um, some photos from a reenactment. This was mom's first baby. She, the baby was breastfed. Dad has older children. Um, the baby's six weeks old. Mom's going out for the first night out with some girlfriends and says, please put the baby in the bassinet. The dad's worked all day, he's tired, he had one glass of wine with dinner, and he falls asleep, he doesn't mean to. Um, and then two hours later, the, babe, the dad wakes up and finds the baby un unresponsive, and the baby has rollin', rollin', rollin'? rolled off the pillow and ended up on his belly, and his face is obstructed, um, and the baby's dead. Um, and the bassinet is right over on the other side of the bed. 
Um, this mom has six-year-old twins. They, they're spending the night at grandma's house. The mom's been on a trip with the baby for, uh, who's three and a half months old. They come home. They're exhausted. The baby's been crying all day long. There's a crib in the room. Mom wants to cuddle. Um, so they fall asleep. And then in the middle of the night, mom wakes up, and she can't find the baby. And the baby has become entrapped um, between the bed and the bedside table. There's been, there was no alcohol or drugs involved, and the mom slept like this with her other kids, and they lived, and she's never heard a baby sighing this way. This mom's breastfeeding with twins. She sits on a recliner every night because she wants to be awake and ready whenever one of the babies wakes up. The babies are two, month old, two months old, and so she's done this every single night, and so she thinks it's safe. One baby slips behind the other, um, behind the mom, and, and dies. And, um, and so when the mom wakes up, she found the baby dead, and the other baby is, is fine. There are two cribs in the home. They had never been used. The boxes had never even been opened. So this is a problem. Philadelphia has had a problem. Los Angeles has had a problem. Almost every single newspaper has had a, a headline like this in the last five or 10 years. Um, so it's, it's a huge problem. Um, so we recommend that babies be in the room with the parents but not bed sharing. Um, it, we know that this decreases risk um, of SIDS by 50%. It's also more likely to, <clears throat> excuse me, to prevent suffocation, strangulation, and entrapment. We'd like the crib to be right next to the parent's bed um, because it makes it easier for the parents to feed the baby and to comfort the baby and to monitor the baby. We are not recommending any of the devices that say that they make bed sharing safe because there's no data to show that. Um, you can bring the baby into bed for comforting and feeding, um, but then you want to put the baby back um, in the crib when you're uh, ready to go back to sleep. Never, ever, ever feed in an armchair or a couch if you feel like you might fall asleep, because those are actually the most dangerous places to sleep with your baby. A lot of people think that if you breastfeed that you can bed share safely, um, and it's a common reason for bed sharing. Um, we know that bed sharing is associated with a longer duration of breastfeeding, but is it because if you breastfeed, you're more likely to bed share, or if you bed share, you're more likely to breastfeed? And we don't know that yet. Um, we know that in African Americans, there's only this association of, of bed sharing and longer duration of breastfeeding in the lower SES groups, and the upper SES groups are other factors that are more important, particularly their belief that breastfeeding is actually better than, than formula feeding. So we know that while bed sharing is, can facilitate it, it isn't essential for um, breastfeeding. And the benefits of breastfeeding don't outweigh the increased risk associated with bed sharing. So if you look at this recent study from um, Bob Carpenter, this shows the risk of um, SIDS with bed sharing and smoking versus non-smoking parents. So if you look at smoking, not, um, if you look at non-smoking parents, the risk of SIDS is um, elevated in bed sharing up until about 14 weeks of age. For, not, for smoking parents, the risk of SIDS never is, is, um, gets down to zero, uh, gets down to um, the same. Um, Barbara Osfield in New Jersey found that 25% of their bed sharing deaths were breastfed babies. Um, they were younger, they were more uh, bedding risk, they were more likely to be prone, um, less likely to be exposed to smoke. So some people think that there are safe bed sharing situations because there are cultures where um, bed sharing is the norm and SIDS rates are low, but you have to look at what the bed sharing looks like there. In most of those cultures, it's, it's hard pallets on the floor, um, and, um, and there's a separate mat for the baby. There's no bedding. Um, there's not a lot of smoking, um, all of that. There have been no subgroups of the population for whom bed sharing has been found to be protective. 
But we do know that there, there are things that make bed sharing more dangerous if parents are smoking, even if they don't smoke in the bed. Um, water beds, sofas, armchairs are huge no-nos. If anything else, you just have to tell them never, ever do it on the couch or in an armchair or in a water bed. If there's bedding or soft blanket, uh, be bedding or bedding such as pillows or blankets, um, if there are multiple bed sharers, so like kids, um, dogs, all of that. Um, uh, if the parents consumed alcohol, if the baby is less than two or three months of age, regardless of the parents smoking, even if the parents don't smoke, again, the risk is there until 14 months, 14 weeks. Um, if bed sharing occurs when the baby doesn't routinely bed share, there's one study that showed that was a risk. Bed sharing is someone who's not a parent, and then the longer you bed share, the more risk it is. But this is controversial. You all know that it's controversial. Um, there are a lot of countries that, that say don't do that, just uh, room share without bed sharing, and others think that, it's, that, the, that this, the evidence is still inconclusive. Okay, so finally, I just want to talk about, you know, dealing with the problem, trying to, trying to craft a message. So, so in order to figure, you want to figure out what the problem is. Why have people not, are not doing this? Is it because they don't know? Or is it because they don't believe it? And if you do, any of the studies um, show that more than 95% of parents have heard back to sleep. They know that that's what the recommendations are. But they just haven't embraced it. And so why is that? Um, it may be that a risky behavior is considered an important practice. Um, a lot of people, again, are worried about the aspiration, so they think they're keeping their baby safe by putting the baby in the, in the, in the um, prone position. They think that they're being vigilant by bed sharing. Um, so this may be an important practice for them. It may be an important coping mechanism for them. If you smoke, alcohol use, those may be coping mechanisms for you. It may be unavoidable. You may not have money to buy a crib. Um, and finally is, you know, what is your perception that this could happen to you? And a lot of parents think this only happens to bad parents. This only happens to other people. This won't happen to me because I'm a good parent. I watch my baby. So there's not a huge um, perception of risk there. So how do we deal with this? How do we encourage behavior change in a way that's positive for people who think that their babies are an exception to the rule? And how do we work smarter um, without working harder, because we're all working hard enough? So a couple of thoughts about this. You want to think about what is going to resonate with the parents. Is SIDS going to resonate with the parents? Is suffocation going to resonate with the parents? Because you know, if you remember the slide that I showed at the beginning, if you have a safe sleep environment, you're going to reduce the risk of both of these. Okay? Um, and then how do the recommendations relate to the disease? So will the parent understand why this works? If they don't understand it, then they're not going to do it. So these are a couple of quotes that we've heard. If they don't know why the babies died, then why does it matter which way you laid your baby? Children sleeping on their back, they still pass. So who's to say the sleeping on the back isn't the cause? So people don't understand the rationale behind this. And bottom line is, do I believe that if I do this, it will make a difference? So you have to persuade the parents. You know, is my baby susceptible to disease? How common is this? Do the people whom I trust, pediatricians, nurses, et cetera, talk to me about this. Because again, if they don't talk to me about it, it's either not that common, it's not that important, or my baby's not at risk. And do they all say the same thing? So we want to make sure that the message is consistent. When I was in the hospital, the nurse put my baby on the stomach. If it's so important, how come the nurse isn't doing it? If I don't hear about it in the media, it must not be a problem anymore. If it's not on the news, it's not a problem. And again, if the stores are selling it, it must be safe. 
So we get messages bombarded, we're bombarded by messages all the time. These are ads and articles that were in um, parent magazines, parenting magazines about um, whatever. And you know, you can see that these are the these are the things that that are considered cute. Um, you know, this is draft Pampers. Who doesn't know babies better than them? And they have babies like this in their ads. They've now taken them off, but. Disney, everybody loves Disney. And Disney knows everything that is good about anything, right? So, you know, if Disney's doing this, then it should be okay for us to do it because Disney is everything happy. Um, so, you know, it, these are trusted brands. Um, you know, I'm not sure where you're going to find the baby in there. <laughs> but, um, you know, still the original, still the best. So you want only the best for your baby. Um, of all the, the ads that we saw, this was the only one that we saw that actually had a good, um, a safe crib. And this was an ad about pregnancy prevention. So not really the way you pictured your first crib, huh? Raising a baby can cost over $10,000 a year. One night could cost you more than you think. Um, well, actually, it is the way that I want my crib to be. <laughs> okay, so in order to persuade, you need to know your audience. Um, it says you're not allowed to use the sprinkler system to keep your audience awake. So you want to speak to their concerns. You want to emphasize the benefits. You, you remember, it's all a sales job. Everything you do is a sales job. Okay? So, you know, if you have the crib next to your bed, you can be vigilant. You can keep your eye on your baby. You don't have to worry about the blankets and the pillows. You can just roll over, bring the baby in to feed, then roll over and put the baby back. Um, you don't have to worry about your baby falling off the bed. I didn't talk about pacifiers, but if you, um, they do reduce the risk of SIDS, so you can talk about pacifiers um, helping, helping to soothe the baby. You also need to know what the perceived disadvantages are, and you need to explain why they're not problems. So you do, you do need to talk about aspiration and choking with every single parent. I do believe that because I think that's a, that's a concern for everybody. Um, you want to think about the barriers. Which ones can you help with? Um, are there free crib programs that you can, you can um, uh, refer them to? Are there space barriers? Can you help to rearrange the room? Um, there are other barriers that are more difficult. Um, and there are unanswered questions. You know, is there a way to bed share safely? We don't know yet. Um, it, can you compensate for one bad behavior for one good behavior? So if you use a pacifier, can you put the baby on the stomach? No. But maybe, you know, maybe it'll find, we'll find out that that's okay. Um, and sometimes right now there aren't any good answers. Um, but in conclusion, you know, I don't, you know, even though I spent a lot of time talking about all the problems, I don't want to minimize the fact that we have had many successes and we are doing, you know, we have done a good job, but we still do have challenges. Um, most of the deaths have, have risk factors that are involved in there. And, um, and, you know, particularly for the young babies, the less than three-month-old babies, those are the ones that have the highest risks. So, so we want to be particularly attuned in, uh, to that. Um, so we need to understand why the community is not embracing the safe sleep recommendations, what the bar barriers are, what the misconceptions are, why it doesn't make sense. And we need to make sure that our message makes sense, is consistent, explains the advantages, and, and addresses the misconceptions. Um, so your impact is important in, in being consistent, um, and you can definitely make a difference. Um, bottom line, this is a, a, a nurse that came to one of our conferences. Um, she said a very sad and ironic situation occurred last night, uh, the day that she came to this conference. Um, one of our preemies died while co-bedding with his mother. It was his first night home. He was in our NICU for several months, was doing great. It's so sad. My guess that the heavy blankets or pillows were too much. He was a tiny little guy. Please keep delivering your message. We need to work together to save the babies. Thank you.
associated with the, de the decline in since deaths. But you presented some data that made me wonder. And the data that you presented was the other trend, and that's the increasing trend of accidental suffocation that's also associated with the back to sleep campaign. And I'm just wondering, um, since death scene investigation was something that kind of started at the same time that the back to sleep campaign started, whether it's possible that death scene investigation is mainly responsible for the decline in SIDS because it's resulted in a classification of a lot more of those deaths as accidental suffocation and reduce the mm -hmm. You know, in the U.S., I think that, you know, there has been a bigger diagnostic shift than in some other countries, and so I think that that certainly contributes to it. I do, I do believe that back sleeping is, does reduce your risk and does reduce the number of SIDS deaths, and if you look at other countries around the world, um, that's definitely true. You know, SIDS rates have dropped by you know, 95%, they rarely have success, and, and it hasn't been overtaken by all of these other things. So... You can't really point to a downward trend in SIDS and say that's a result of the back-to-sleep campaign. Well, you know, if you look at, if you look at back-sleeping, and back-sleeping has increased, you know, the problem is these are all case control studies. There are no randomized control trials, so we can't say things are causative. Okay, so, um, but yes, I mean, I think that I do believe that back sleeping does contribute to the, the, the um, lowering of these deaths, um, but I do also think that there are other things at play, some of which we don't yet know about. And I don't know if Dr. Andrew can, can say anything more about that. Only to the, to the fact that the, the, the improved death scene investigation has revealed more of these unsafe sleep environments, but I too, uh, I would agree with Dr. Moon in that just back sleeping per se, based on the physiology, clearly has resulted in some portion, some proportion of that decline uh, in sudden unexpected infant deaths due to what we understood as classic SIDS. I think that it's a combination of things. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Andrews, the state medical examiner that uh, Dr. Moon pointed out. Allison, Dr. Holmes? I was hoping you could make a brief comment on both swaddling and hacks. Okay. Um, swaddling, the jury is out on swaddling um, because the, the data on swaddling are really kind of all over the place. Um, what's very clear, the, the, and one, one of the things that is of concern is that swaddling um, may have detrimental impacts on your arousal, and we don't know that yet, okay? Um, the good thing about swaddling is that um, parents are more likely to be able to keep their babies on the back while they're swaddled. Um, the bad thing about swaddling is that parents don't often put their um, they often don't put their babies on their back when they're swaddled, and we know that if babies are not on their backs when they're swaddled, that that's a huge risk factor, um, because then they end up on their stomachs, and, then, and, the, and they're in these straight jackets, and they can't move. Um, and so, um, you know, my recommendation is um, I think swaddling is fine um, until you see the baby starting to make efforts to roll. Um, and then I would, my, you know, yet evidence not quite based um, recommendation would be then to stop the swaddling. Um, and, and definitely if you're going to swaddle, always, always, always put the baby all the way on the back, not even tilted a little bit. 
hats. Hats, you know, again, there's there's no data on that. We're we're actually we're actually you know people have asked us to look at hats. Um, there there are no data on you know the little hats in the nursery. You know the data that are out there are old data that have shown that head covering increases your risk of SIDS. Um, but it's usually head covering from blankets. Um, and so you know the little hats that they put on in the nursery, um, there really aren't any data about that. So unfortunately, we're out of time on those last two notes. Um, Dr. Moon is teaching with the house staff at noon. Sam, in what room? L5A. L5A. I don't think it's a closed shop. There's also an expert on placental quality in Borwell at noon. And Friday morning, Dr. Stephen Lipschultz, who is the chair of pediatrics at Wayne State, is presenting medicine grand rounds here at 8 a.m. So a rich week. And thanks again, Dr. Moon. Thank you. Thank you.